Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of A Word from the Lord. Today is part five in the teaching series, Turkeys and Eagles. This morning we're continuing our series of sermons entitled Turkeys and Eagles. And what we've been attempting to do is look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians and point out some turkeyisms. That is, some of these things that we've been duped into believing or behaving, which really aren't what Christianity is all about. And point out some of the things where we can change our thinking and become like eagles, like the people that God wants us to be. Now, the passage this morning from Ephesians chapter 5 had so many turkeyisms in it that I decided we'd just do one. Kind of an overview of the whole thing. Turkey thinking says, my Christianity really doesn't have an effect on my family relationships. My upbringing does. My Christianity really doesn't have an effect on my family relationships. My upbringing does. Eagle thinking says, my Christianity places me in the kingdom of God with a radically different view of family relationships. Because I'm a Christian, I am now in the kingdom of God and that changes everything. Imagine walking through a door and everything is now blue colored. All you see is blue. It changes everything. Marriage in America is having a rough time. And I wish I could say that Christian marriage was different, but it's not. Each year, Rutgers University has an annual marriage project where they study marriage in America. Here's a summary of their 2005 analysis of the social health of marriage in the United States. Americans are becoming more and more less likely to even get married. Of those who do marry, There's been a moderate drop since the 70s of the percentage of couples who consider their marriage a happy marriage. The divorce rate is nearly twice what it was in 1960, although it's declined some in recent years. The lifetime probability of divorce or separation in your marriage remains 40 or 50 percent. The presence of children in America has declined significantly since 1960 as measured by fertility rates and the percentages of households that actually have children living there. Other indicators suggest that this decline has reduced the child-centeredness of our nation and contributed to the weakening of the institution of marriage. The percentage of children who grow up in fragile, and fragile homes are typically fatherless homes, has grown enormously over the past 40 years. This is mainly due to increases in divorce out-of-wedlock births, and unmarried cohabitation. And then we're also told in this study that the desire of teenagers of both sexes is that they want a good marriage and a good family life. And that's increased slightly over the past 20 years. In summary, marriage and family in the United States is still in a general decline. And sadly to say, it's not much different among Christian people. Too many of us who follow Christ today don't allow our Christianity to make it through the front door of our homes. Now, in order to bring a better understanding of the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I want us to go back about 2,000 years. So we're going to turn the clock back and go back to the first century and see if we can understand the culture a little bit about what was going on when Paul wrote this letter. First of all, in the Jewish world, 
Women and children were considered property. Property. The Jews of that day had a low view of women. Women Barclay notes that a Jewish man would thank God in his morning prayer that he was not, quote, a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In the Jewish law of that day, now I make a distinction here between Jewish law and biblical law. In Jewish law of that day, a woman had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely her husband's possession to do with as he pleased. Men could divorce their wives, but women could not divorce their husbands unless he became a leper, left the faith, or took up some job that was immoral or disgusting in her mind. Why a man could divorce his wife was based on Deuteronomy 24.1. But the reasons went from all kind of things, from having an affair or committing adultery to Hillel's followers who said this, that you could divorce your wife if she spoiled your dinner, if you walked in public with your head uncovered, if you talked with men in the streets, if she spoke disrespectful of her husband's parents in front of his hearing, if she was troublesome or quarrelsome. In the Jewish culture of that day, women and children were viewed as property. Now let's go from the Jewish culture to the Greek world. And many, even in Israel, many cities were, were Jewish cities, but some cities were actually Greek cities. And they had a whole different way of looking at things. In the Greek world, women and children were for pleasure. Prostitution was an accepted part of the Greek life. And women were basically used for purposes of pleasure. Demosthenes said, we have courtesans, that is prostitutes, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having children and of having a faithful guardian for our household affairs. In the Greek culture, the elite women, those who were from the respectable upper classes, lived a completely secluded life. She took part in public life never. She never appeared on the streets by herself. She never appeared at meals. Usually she had her own place, an apartment, and no one could enter her apartment except her husband. In the Greek world, women and children were for pleasure and wives that were expected to run the home, care for the husband's legitimate children. And then we have the Roman world. Remember the Romans had conquered that whole area and basically were running the world at that point. In the Roman world, women and children were passed around. In the beginning of the Roman Empire, this is incredible to think about, but for the first 500 years, there supposedly was never any divorces. No one had a divorce. But by the first century, Roman family life was in a mess. Seneca wrote that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. He goes on to say that women dated their years by the names of their husbands. William Barclay reports the following. He says, Marshall tells of a woman who had ten husbands. Juvenal tells of one who had eight husbands in five years. Jerome declares that it to be true that in Rome there was a woman who was married to her 23rd husband, and she herself was his 21st wife. We find even Cicero 
in his old age, putting away his wife Terenia, whose trustee he was, that he might enter her estate to pay for his debts. It's into this world of Judaism and this world of Greco-Roman culture that Jesus walks in. We find him respecting women, talking to women, honoring them. Jesus raised the status of women. He brought a whole new way of thinking about family. In John 4, we see that Jesus treated women with honor and courtesy, contrary to the culture. Jesus invited children to come to him, and he blessed them. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus taught that God established marriage in creation. Mark chapter 10, verse 6. He taught that a husband and wife would become one flesh. Mark 10, verse 8. He taught that God brought a couple together and that no one was to come between them. Mark 10, 9. And Jesus taught that there were negative consequences for divorce. Mark 10, 10. And then comes along Paul, the Apostle Paul, who set up churches and then he writes to the Christians who live in Ephesus. And when he writes these words, remember he's not writing in a vacuum. He's writing in the culture in which he's living. They were a part of the kingdom of God, these early Christians. They were a part of the blessed followers of Jesus. They were called to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be imitators of God, and then be vessels of his light to the world. They were to be different from the culture in which they lived. And by being different in their families, they would then transform the culture, which eventually they did. So the passage begins with verse 21. So if you have your Bible, if you'd open with me, please. Verse 21, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the principle of Christian community. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit means to yield, to give into, to accept, to agree to. Submit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It means to practice the golden rule of Jesus. You know what that is, right? You treat the other one how you want to be treated yourself. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Paul then applies this principle in three ways. Actually, it's four ways, but we're only going to look at three of them. He applies it to wives. He applies it to husbands. He applies it to children and parents. And then he applies it to employees and employers. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. First, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Wives, submit to your husbands. As to the Lord, he says, verse 22. Why? Because the husband is the head of the family, verse 23. How? As the church submits to Christ. Now, he's not saying here that wives are to be doormats. He's not saying wives are to worship your husbands. Oh, you are my Lord. At your command, your wishes, 
I will do. Lord, Master, he's not saying that at all. He's saying yield. He's saying to treat your husband how you want to be treated. Now, this is not saying that husbands shouldn't submit to their wives. This is getting at a problem that most women have, submitting to their husbands. Women are usually natural leaders. Just read Proverbs 31. In seminary, I used to kid the feminists that they were messing it up for the women who lived in the South. They'd look at me with kind of a strange face. What do you mean? Say, well, in the South, women run everything, but they just don't know it or nobody talks about it. It's just assumed, right? A study released this week said that by the year 2010, which is in four years, over 60% of the wealth of our country will be owned by women. The same study said that 90% of the women worry about being financially secure. That's the Proverbs 31 woman kicking in. Women are natural leaders. And this is one reason why it is crucial that they submit to their husbands. If not, their husbands will just take a back seat to family life. How many of y'all have come to me and said something? I just can't get my husband to... Well, that's what happens. Again, this is not saying that husbands shouldn't submit to their wives. This is getting at a problem most women have, submitting to their husbands. Secondly, he says here, husbands, love your wives. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Verse 25. Why? Because husbands, you're the head of the family. Verse 23. How? We love them by sacrifice and by serving her as Christ does and as he did. How? By nourishing and providing for her as he does for us. Verse 28. Husbands are great at loving things car, a new putter, the game, right? But husbands have a hard time loving their wives. Loves means putting 1 Corinthians 13 into action, being patient with your wives, being kind to your wives. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Husbands, love your wives. Now this is not saying that wives shouldn't love their husbands. This is getting at a problem that most men have loving their wives. That's what women say. He doesn't love me. 
In the marriage ceremony, the question is asked, will you have this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And the man says, I will. This is what loving your wife is all about. Again, this is not saying that wives shouldn't love your husbands, but it's getting at a problem that most men have, loving their wives. A third thing here, husbands and wives become one flesh, but it's more than just physical. It's spiritual, emotional. It even gets into the personality part of the person. Look at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. One flesh. He gets this from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and Jesus affirmed this in Mark chapter 10. One flesh. It takes you to a deeper level of common heart and common purpose. You become part of each other. You become partners on this thing called life. One reason divorce is so hard is that this oneness occurs on many deep levels. Divorce is like ripping a garment apart. And I've been told by many people who even though they felt and everybody involved felt the right thing to do was to get a divorce. And they got a divorce. And they said, yet it hurt. It was painful. It's the ripping of the one flesh. Next, we see the basic need of a wife to be loved by her husband. And we see the basic need of a husband to be respected by his wife. Respect comes from submission. Look at verse 33. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He doesn't love me like Christ loves the church. She won't submit to me. How many times do we hear that? If you're thinking that, you're missing the point. The point is that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If the focus is on the other person, you're missing the point. You're supposed to be focusing on yourself. Me, submitting Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, then Paul continues about family relationships. Children are to obey their parents. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. That it may go well with you and that you may have long life on the earth. He says to obey in the Lord. He says it's right. And he says it's the only commandment with a promise. The first one that comes with a promise. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. If you go look at the Ten Commandments, the one that says honor your father and mother is the only one with a promise. And what's that promise? That you may live long upon the earth and that it may go well with you. Why should children obey their parents? 
um, I want to give the, the youth and the children an assignment to start reading Proverbs and go through Proverbs and just mark anything that has to do with a son or a father and look at that in the context of your relationship with your parents. Next, he says, parents do not overwhelm their children. Verse 4, parents do not overwhelm your children. Verse 4, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Exasperate means to frustrate, drive mad, infuriate. It doesn't mean you won't make your children angry. Just tell them they can't do something, and they're going to get angry. But what it means is don't continue to drive them by being overbearing, dictatorial, authoritative, a despot. You overwhelm them, and then what happens? You break the relationship because they're exasperated. Bring them up in the Lord. And how? It says, by training and instruction. The kingdom of God calls us to loving family relationships. But I'm afraid if we went into each of our homes and we showed a video of what goes on behind closed doors, we wouldn't see much of this loving family relationships. We're called to be different. We are not to be like the culture out there. We are part of the kingdom of God, and it ought to resonate in our families when we walk through our front doors as well. Men and women, as Christians, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for our Lord. We are to treat one another as we desire to be treated. When the doors of your house are closed and no one is around, it's time to transform your thinking and transform your behavior, not by pointing out the other one's faults, but by looking at yourself. I mean, what would happen rather than pointing out their faults once a day, you pointed out something they were doing right? It transformed your house. Turkey thinking says, my Christianity really doesn't have an effect on my family relationships. Eagle thinking says, my Christianity places me in the kingdom of God with a radically different view of family. That was Dr. Beach with today's message. For more information on this message and this ministry, please visit awordfromthelord.org. There you will find today's message and previously aired messages, where you can listen to them again and share them with friends and family. Awordfromthelord.org has audio archives of Foley Beach's one-minute radio feature and much more. So visit awordfromthelord.org for audio, articles, and information about the ministry. You can find A Word from the Lord on Facebook, and be sure to click the Like button to follow our feed on Facebook. You'll want to be sure to visit Foley's blog at bishopfoleybeach.blogspot.com. On the blog, you can read the many articles posted by Dr. Beach. Many of these blog entries are excerpts and full articles published in local publications. 
You can also follow Foley on Twitter. His Twitter address is twitter.com at Foley Beach. If you have any comments or questions about the program, you can contact Dr. Beach by email at foleybeach at a word from the Lord.org. Again, his email is foleybeach at a word from the Lord.org. You can contact us by mail. Our mailing address is P.O. Box 636, Monroe, Georgia 30655. Our mailing address again is P.O. Box 636, Monroe, Georgia 30655. Whether you send us an email or write to us, we'd love to hear from you. A Word from the Lord is made possible by God's grace through the continued prayers and loving financial support from you. We thank you for this opportunity to spread the hope of the gospel of Christ through this ministry. Join us again next time for the next broadcast of A Word from the Lord. For Dr. Beach and everyone here at A Word from the Lord, it is our prayer that you would be seeking A Word from the Lord.